0: Can you uh, turn to someone and say, it's good to be here today? Can you say that? It's good to be here today. What a blessing it is. We are um, going to just jump right in. We've got a lot of stuff to do today that is exciting. We're in the middle of the book of Esther. We're kind of towards the back end of it. Uh, we're going to start looking at Esther chapter 7 today. But uh, for those who are new, just real quick, uh, um, because this is a true story, it's a true narrative, we've got to kind of get us up to speed Five main characters, the true story of what's happening for the people of God as they live in the Persian Empire, 5th century B.C. So 473, about 483 to 473 B.C. is when the events of the book of Esther take place. We're living in the Persian Empire, and the people of God are living in enemy territory. And so what do we see here? Uh, We see five main characters. The king of Persia is a man named... Xerxes. He's a bad man. He's vile. He's angry. He's evil. He's wicked. He loves women. He loves pleasure. He loves wine. He loves eating. And he loves to expand his territory. This is Xerxes. He's over the Persian Empire. The second person we see is a woman named Vashti. She's the queen. Vashti's the queen. She's a main character only because of the fact that she gets erased from the storyline pretty quickly. She's the queen. The king says, hey, come and dance before my drunk men of the Persian Empire. She says, no, I will not do that. I won't be degraded. I won't be paraded like that. I'm not going to do it. She says, "Uh, I'm out of here. And so the king says, have it your way. No longer queen. Third main character then we see is a woman named Esther. She's actually a young girl. In this void of a a queen, he needs a queen. So he says, send out all of my messengers into the distant parts of the empire, 127 provinces. And I want you to find beautiful young girls who've never been with a man before. And each one of them, I want them to spend one night with me. And based on how much I like her, I'm going to make her the queen. And so out of hundreds, maybe thousands of people, an orphan Jewish girl named Esther, Hadassah, given a Persian name Esther, becomes the queen of the most powerful kingdom empire in the world. The fourth person we see is a man named Mordecai. Mordecai is her uncle. He adopted her because she lost her parents when she was young. Mordecai, like Esther, have Persian names. They're hiding their Jewish identity. They're hiding the fact that they are people of God, much like Christians in our world today who don't want others to know that they follow God. This is what Mordecai was doing. He had political aspirations. He wanted to be someone powerful in the kingdom of Persia, but there's a wrestling going on in his heart if he's going to live for the people of God or if he's going to live for the empire of Persia. The fifth person then we see is a man named Haman. Haman is a bad man, almost similar to Xerxes. He also has political aspirations. There's speculation he wants to be the king of Persia. He's the second in command. He is equally angry and upset and mad. He comes from the Agagite tribe, which is an ancient Amalekites, who are the sworn enemies of the people of God. And so because of the fact that Haman and Mordecai cannot get along because of, for whatever reason, but the, the, the main reason is because they've got history. Their families have history going back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Because they've got beef and they've got history, Haman doesn't like Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't like Haman. And because of that, uh, Haman, in his position of power, says, we're going we're gonna to get rid of not only Mordecai, but all of his people. And so 15 million Jews, their lives are on the line 11 months out, The order has been given that in 11 months, the 15 million Jews of the Persian Empire will be destroyed, killed, annihilated, genocide in Persia. So the only person that can do anything about this is Esther because, one, she cares. Secretly, she's a Jew. Her people know that. Nobody else does. She could do something about it because not only is she a Jew... But she's royalty now. She's got the ear of the king, so she thinks. But in order for her to talk to the king, she risks her life because no one has gone before the king unsummoned and lived to tell about it. And so this is the dilemma that's there. Esther goes and she says, I'm going to slow play this a little bit after fasting and praying. She says, we're going to slow play this whole deal. What I'm going to do is I'm going to throw a couple parties, a couple feasts for Xerxes and for Haman. And during the second feast, I'm going to bring up this request. That's what we're going to look at today. But in between the two feasts, what's happening is Haman, the bad man, second in command, prime minister, is really excited because he just spent time with the king and the queen. And as he's walking home, he sees Mordecai, and he is, all those good feelings go out the window because he sees Mordecai. It's like, man, this guy's a punk. I don't like him. And so his wife and his friends are like, dude, you're like, you're like prime minister. Why don't you just make a gallows, okay, which is a place where, 75 feet up in the air where he would get impaled, like there would be these stakes, and they would drop Mordecai on there, and he would get killed, okay, precursor to the Roman crucifixion. Like, dude, you're like, don't, don't act like this, you ain't some like pauper, you're the prime minister. So build the gallows and ask Xerxes if tomorrow, not 11 months later, but tomorrow, get rid of the bug, let's squash him, ask Xerxes if you can have Mordecai killed. So he's happy about that. He goes to bed that night. But the problem is, Xerxes the king can't sleep that night. And it just so happens that he remembers, oh my gosh, there was this, someone tells him about this man named Mordecai who did something great, who saved the king's life, but never got honor for it. And so the next day, what ends up happening is that Haman, thinking that he's going to continue his ascent to power, Mordecai, who does not know the fact that he's supposed to die that day, there's this cosmic and divine reversal where Mordecai gets elevated to a position of honor, and it's Haman who parades Mordecai around the streets of the Persian Empire saying, this is the man that the king loves to honor. (laughs) And so that night, Mordecai goes home really happy. This is like, it's been a good day. Like, man, all... all of this being faithful to God, it, it actually pays off. Haman goes to sleep that night humiliated with egg all over his face. It's like, what has become of my life? And in, he's like crying and he's sad and he's like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. And as he's in that state, the end of chapter 6 says Esther's eunuchs and messengers came and took him to the second dinner. This is where we pick up in Esther chapter 7. Um, this is a Korean drama. Someone once said this is like a Korean drama with all the plot twists and, 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 oh my gosh, M. Night Shyamalan kind of stuff where, oh, you think it's this, but appearances really deceive you. Someone said it's a Korean drama with Persian subtitles. Isn't that funny? Actually, I said that. So I'm saying that right now. It's a Korean drama with Persian subtitles, all right? This is what we're watching here. It's a true story that really happened because God is the director of all of this. And we come to Esther chapter 7. Verse 1, this is the word of God for the people of God, an account of the people of God back in that day. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, so what's your petition? It'll be given you. What's your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it'll be granted. And Queen Esther answered, if I found favor with you, O king, And if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And and spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we'd merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet. Because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where's the man who's dared to do such a thing? Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this vile, Haman. And Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the guard, palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she's with me in the house? As Soon as that word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king said, a gallows 75 feet high stands by Haman's house. He had it made for Mordecai who spoke up to help the king. The king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows He had prepared for Mordecai, then the king's fury subsided. This is God's word. Wow. (laughs) It gets crazier and crazier, right? Oh, my goodness. Like, what in the world is going on? Let me just bring out three thoughts here, three thoughts that are important for us to realize. Um, Esther took a stand for God, and what I want us to understand is that when you stand for God, you never stand alone. When you stand for God, you never stand alone. Our series is called Living for God in this Crazy World. This world is crazy. This world is Persia. We're Jews. We're... We're the people of God, people of faith, living in the Persian Empire that's opposed to the life of God within us, opposed to the values of the kingdom of God. Here's the thought, guys. Here's the understanding. Sometimes, many times, there will be a choice. Will you stand for God in this world or will you not? We've seen this all throughout the book of Esther. But when you stand for God, what you and I need to understand is that when you do, you never stand alone. Here's Esther. She's standing sitting at this banquet. She's prepared this meal. You've got Xerxes, you've got Haman. Xerxes is getting drunk like he always does and so he says, "Whatever you want me to do, tell me. What is it that you want?" And she says, "Spare me my life." He's like, "What in the world are you talking about? Like who wants to kill you?" He has no idea. This is completely catching him off guard. He's like, "What are you talking about?" And she says, "That's my petition, but here in my request, but here Here's the other thing, I want you to spare my people as well. It's one and the same thing. She cannot separate what she wants for herself with what she wants for her people because she knows that when she stands for her life, she's standing for and with other people. What does that mean? It means that 15 million people, 15 million Jews are not only, their lives depend on Esther here, absolutely, but even more than that, Esther is crystal clear in her mind that 15 million people are the backbone upon which she stands right now, the shoulders upon which she stands, because for three days they've been fasting and they've been praying. She is absolutely convinced of one idea, As she identifies with her people. She says, I need these 15 million people, and these 15 million people need me. And there's no mistaking this fact that when you live for God, when you've been saved out of the world, you're saved into a family of God. There's no such thing in the mind of God, at least as he wrote scripture, that you would be a Christian and not be part of the people of God. For you to be a Christian and say, but I don't need the fellowship of other people. He's saying, no, 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 you absolutely need to understand that when you stand for God, you never stand alone. When you stand for God, you cannot stand alone because you are saved out of the world and into a body and into a family. And what Esther is saying is we've got to be absolutely certain that we know this. There's no such thing as a Christian who's not committed to a body, who's not committed to a people, who is not part of a community of faith. There's no conception in the mind of the people of God of a person who says they confess faith in him but does not live in community with others who are walking in the same direction. So here's Esther. She has said in her heart in Esther chapter 4, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to talk to the king. And if I perish, I perish. What was she doing? In that moment, she was identifying herself not as a Persian but as a child of God. In her heart, in other words, she was burning the bridges with Persian privilege. Because understand this, guys, we have to understand that if you're God's child living in this world, there are certain privileges that this world affords to you that we do not associate ourselves with. There are certain things that this world says you ought to have sinful pleasures, sinful tendencies, that we oftentimes think, well, I can just dabble with these things as a child of God. But what the Word of God makes clear is that friendship with this sinful world is hatred towards God if your brother or your sister was killed by somebody right was killed by somebody for you to go and fraternize with them and say this person is my friend would be a disservice and a dishonor to the family member who had been killed and it was sin in the world that crucified our savior and so when we say we're friends with the world We have to think what that means about our relationship with God and what it's really saying, not what we say we believe, not what we think we believe, not what we sing we believe, but what our lives say we believe about our relationship with God. And what Esther is saying is, as I stand for God, I burned my bridges long ago, but the first time I'm crossing over that line and I'm saying I'm 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 a person of faith. I believe in the true and living God. I come descendant of Abraham, a child of the king. What we would say today is I'm a child of God, a believer in Jesus Christ, my Savior, and I've drawn the line in the sand and I've crossed over it. I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. This is who I am. When push comes to shove as you live life in this world as a child of God, when you go to school, when you go to work, it's not, the question is not, hey, do you like your church friends better or your school friends better? Your church friends better or uh, your sinful friends better? That's not the question. The question is when push comes to shove, will you stand for God and say, I believe in him, I'm a child of God and I'm going to live for him no matter what anybody else says or does to me? That's the question that every single one of us has to ask. This is what Esther had to ask herself as she looked in the mirror. I'm the queen of Persia. To identify myself as a Jewish person could potentially end my life. But she decided in her heart, I'm burning my bridges with this world. I've decided to follow him. And so she draws her line in the sand and she says, here it is, king. Here's my request. I'm a Jew. I follow God. And I stand for my people. And what Esther is telling us is that whenever you and I make a stand for God, you may feel like you're alone in the palace of Persia, but you never stand alone when you take a stand for God. 15 million people were depending on Esther, and Esther was dependent upon 15 million people. What does that mean? It means that your life is wholly wrapped up, not only with his, but with his people as well. Not only do you need them, but they need you. Right? You need the prayers of your people to carry you in those times to stand for God. They need you. You need them. You need to carry their burdens. They need you to carry their burdens. You need to pray for them. They need to pray for you. They need to, to, to sing the songs of the church. You know what? You know how many times it's like I come into worship believing the songs that I sing or sometimes even struggling to believe the songs that we're singing? Obviously, I believe it, but there are moments there's questions. But then I come into this body and I hear people singing around me and I'm like, man, this is what I need. I need people to sing this truth into my own heart. I need to know that when I stand for God, I'm not standing alone. I need to know in my heart of hearts that when I stand for God, that you are standing with me, and you need to know that one another, you've got other people who are standing with you as well. That you're part of a much bigger thing than you might think. When you say, I'm standing for God alone at this party, they're all doing drugs, but I'm going to stand for God. You do not stand alone. Not as a child of God. So I think about this. I've shared this. Uh, maybe three, four years ago, but when I think about what it means to stand for God and to not stand alone, I think about this uh, this young man in Northern California uh, many, many years ago. He uh, he was involved in gangs and drugs and things like that in, in Northern California. Probably he's a, a very uh, well-known Korean street gang in San Francisco. And there was this youth revival, youth retreat where... People were coming, and they were hearing the word of God and, and, and worshiping the Lord. And He's the kind of guy that um, a lot of times people look at this guy as they walk in and say, why is he here? You know, he's probably here to pick up girls, or he's probably here to uh, recruit people for his gang. Right? But whatever reason he's here, it's bothersome to some people right, as they think about his presence there. But for whatever reason they thought he was there, he was there because God was doing something within this young man's heart. And at the end of the message, when they invitate, there was an altar call given. If you want to put your trust and follow Jesus, then you can come to the front and just kneel and, and we'll have people come and pray for you. And so this guy walked up there, he was like sobbing and he was weeping, like God was working in his heart and he came to the floor and he just started kneeling and he started praying and he said, I don't know if he was praying, but he was crying, just like sobbing and weeping. And there was a pastor, he was 27 years old, his name was Chan, and Chan came out of a lifestyle of, of, of drugs and gang-banging and, and things like that, and so he knew this, this young guy. He knew what he was going through. And so he walked, he walked up to him, and he, he knelt down next to him, he put his arm around him, and he said, hey, um, you want to put your trust in Christ. And th- this guy, big, strong guy, he just is weeping. And he says, it's just so hard so hard, I wanna follow him, but I don't know if I can. For all of us who've been in a place like that where it's a call to leave the world to follow Jesus, you know it's hard, we all know it's hard. But what Chan knew is what most of us don't know about that guy's situation, he's in a gang. Your gang is your family. You sell everything out to be part of this gang. You fight with each other. You fight for each other. You give your lives for one another. That's your family. And so you want to leave a gang, it's not just peace out, homies, I'm out of here. You want to leave a gang, you get beat out. That's what happens. You get beat out. Because it's betrayal against your brothers. And so what you do is if, you, if, I'm a, if I'm a dude in a gang and I want to leave, then all the gang brothers would stand on either side, make lines. Some would have uh, baseball bats, lead pipes, two-by-fours, whatever it is that they, got, they, they wanted to beat out with. And as I walk through, they just, you get beat out. You get beat until you make it through the line. And then if, you, if you're alive, then you, you can leave your gang. You get beat out. That's what you do. That's what he's saying. I want to follow Jesus, but it's hard. That's the cost. And so as this guy's weeping, Chan knows, he's like, I bid there. He said, listen, when you leave this life of sin to follow Jesus, there will be a better family that's waiting for you. There is a better family that's waiting for you when you leave this behind. And he said, I will go with you so that when you get beat out, I will receive you on the other side and we will go together to your home. I will be there with you when you get beat out because you need to know that you don't do this alone. And the guy's like, it's, it's just too hard. It's too hard. And so Chan said, this is, the right decision to follow Jesus. He said, here, listen, young brother, I will go with you and I will walk through that line and I will get beat out with you so that you know that you're not standing alone for God. He's weeping. He's crying. doesn't know what to do. And then I Maybe in a moment of just divine inspiration or craziness, Chan said, listen, young brother, I will talk to them, and if they let me, I will get beat out for you. I'll go through that line for you. My life for yours. Any day, any time, any place so that you will know that you are not alone." What kind of a love is this for somebody that you do not know? That's the radical, radical nature of the love of God and the family of God. And you and I need to not only know that this is us, but we need to be this kind of a people for one another. I don't imagine we'd get beat out like this, but we have to know that when, and and we need to communicate to each other, listen, brother, sister, when you stand for God, you will not stand alone, right? You will not stand alone. There's a chain of witnesses that has been lined up and linking arms for thousands of years throughout human history, saying, I believe in God. I will risk my life, and if I perish, I perish. But I do it for the sake of my God and for the people that I love. This is our family. That's the first thing we see. I've got to move on. First thing we see, when you stand for God, you never stand alone. Second thing, second thing, when you fight against God, on the alternative, when you fight against God, you're ultimately fighting against yourself. When you fight against God, you're ultimately fighting against yourself. Esther's like, all right, here it is. Here's my request. Spare me. Spare my my people. Uh, Verse 5, Xerxes says, who is he? Where's the man who's dared to do such a thing? Xerxes has no idea what she's talking about. Why not? Because she's never said she's not Persian. Ain't nobody know that she's a Jew. They, all they know, is she's just a good Persian young girl who was brought into the harem and became queen. Haman has no idea. Nobody's told him. She hasn't told him. Mordecai, she doesn't know. He doesn't know anything about Esther, who she is. And so here's Esther. And she says, spare my people. So she, lays all, she brings all the chips out, lays it on the table, puts her cards on the table, and Xerxes who is he where's the man and Esther says the adversary and enemy is this vile man so think about this this is crazy I am Esther I'm the hostess of this banquet okay uh, here's king Xerxes he's eating drinking his wine asking me what's going on here's Haman he's just he he it's just this is like she, he's asking her. She's responding to him. He's talking to her. She's responding. So I'm just going to eat my chicken and <laughs> eat my steak. I'm going to eat my mutton, whatever it is that he... So he's just eating, stuffing his mouth, all this stuff, drinking wine. He's like happy over here. He's like, who is this man? Who is this person? He's clueless. She's like, the adversary, the enemy, this vile... And then in slow motion, if this is a movie, okay, Esther played by Natalie Portman, right, the Jewish actress, the adversary, the enemy, the vile... Hey, man, right? And Haman's got, like, food all dripping down his mouth, like, what the what? Like, what are you talking about? And he's, like, completely perplexed. And then reality hits that Esther is actually a Jew. And he has ordered for her execution along with the other 15 million people who belong to that race. And all of a sudden, has there ever been a moment, that, has it been a, like a, a, a five seconds in your life that changed your life and you knew that everything that you've built up was coming to a crash? Like, holy cow. Those five seconds just happened for Haman where he's like, dude, my life is over. And so Xerxes is livid. He's, he's gonna get rid of He's gonna get rid of Haman, but he's got his own little dilemma because he's the one whose signet ring is on that decree to kill the Jews. So he's like, "Mm, what am I? So he knows he's gonna kill him, but he goes and takes a walk in the garden trying to figure all this stuff out. Harem protocol says if you're a man and you're not the king, you do not get within 10 steps of a member of the harem, let alone the queen. But Haman knows he has no choice but to plead for mercy. And so he comes to Esther And he's pleading with her. I don't know how long this takes. It doesn't say. But walking around the palace garden, he walks back in, Xerxes does. And just at the perfect moment, Haman trips and falls over the couch and is all over Esther. (laughs) Xerxes opens the door and sees Haman like all over Esther tripping. And he's like, oh, what is this? You want to molest the queen in my presence, in front of my face? He he doesn't think that's happening, but that's his out. Now, I have a way that I can kill Haman while vindicating myself. The reason Haman did this, I did this to Haman, was because he was messing with my wife. And so they put the bag over their heads. This is what they do before they get executed. Took them away. And this eunuch says, by the way, king, there's a gallows hanging right outside of his house. He wanted to kill Mordecai with it. Mordecai, the one who saved your life. And he says, hang him on it and kill him. Everything we know up until Esther chapter 6 is that Haman is this vile, mean, terrible God-hater. From the moment we were introduced to him as an Agagite, the ancient enemy of God, he was the embodiment of everything that was fighting against God's people, his purposes, his promises, and his children. And from what appearances made it seem like everything was going quite well for Haman. He was getting honored. He was becoming a prime minister. He was dining with the queen. He was dining with the king. Everything was going well. He built the gallows. The one thing in his life that wasn't good, Mordecai, he was going to get rid of him. And then all of a sudden, things started spiraling downhill until that point in time where he fell all over Esther's couch. If there is a God who is sovereign over the rising and falling of faulty zippers on pants, it's the same God who's sovereign over the rising and falling of clumsy prime ministers over the sofa bed of the queen. And so here goes Haman. Trips and he falls. Because what he thought and what many people think I can fight against God, and I can get away with it. I can fight against God, and there will be no consequences for it. There will be for other people, but not with me. It'll be different with me. That's what Haman's life was communicating. In fact, Ernest Hemingway, that, that wonderful author of wonderful books, Hemingway was famously quoted as saying, biblical morality will have no grip on my life. He said, I have, I have fought battles, I have toppled women, I have pursued every pleasure, and my life is living proof that you can fight against God and still live the kind of life that you want to live. Ten years to the day that he wrote that, he committed suicide by putting a shotgun in his mouth and blew out his brains through the back of his head. Because you can't fight God and win. Ultimately, eventually, eventually, God will have his way. Haman thought, wow, I'm fighting against God. I'm accomplishing. He thought he had the power. Only to realize that all it took was a sleepless night, the trip of, of a, you know, however it is that he tripped and fell to bring everything, that house of cards came tumbling down. I want to uh, encourage some of us to really heed these words, because I think some of us have been living what seems like a consequence-free life as we live against the teachings of God. I'm lying, I'm cheating, I'm committing uh, sexual immorality, I'm uh, living a life that does not honor the Lord, I'm doing drugs, I'm underage drinking, whatever it might be, and hey, everything's been cool, everything's fine. Can I tell you something? This is not my opinion. This is what the word of God makes clear. We reap what we sow. And when you fight against God, you're ultimately fighting against yourself. Haman had no idea that the gallows that he was building was the very gallows upon which he himself would be impaled. And we think we can, uh, just as, as, as Xerxes put a cover over the face of Haman, we think we can put a cover over the face of God that he won't see the sins that I'm doing. It'll be different with me, we say. But the word of God is making it clear that when we fight against God, we're really digging our own grave and fighting against ourselves. Well, how does that happen? It looks like everything's been fine. Everything's been fine. The last thing that we see is that everything can change overnight. Everything can change overnight. And so here you go, the night before, Mordecai goes to bed thinking that in the morning, his pretty grand life, is going to become perfect when Mordecai, is, uh, when Mordecai is gone. Here's Mordecai going to sleep that night. He doesn't know that the powers that be by tomorrow night want to have him killed. He has no idea. But in this divine orchestration of events for the sake that his promised line would continue so that through this seed would come the Savior of the world in order that his promises would be fulfilled... God pulls the carpet out from all of these things and he says, listen, everything can change overnight. That's all it takes. Five seconds, mutton in his mouth to be coming, impaled on the gallows. That's all it took. The news came within a five-second span. Everything can fall just like that. On the other hand, for Mordecai, who had been giving himself and and struggling in faith. Do I live for God? Do I live for the world? Do I live for God? Do I live for the world? Do I stay hidden? Do I come out when the temptation is to hide? Do I shine? What do I do? What do I do? And finally, he's beginning to grow in himself this sense of, I need to stand for my people. I need to stand for myself. And while he was laboring in what seemed and toiling in what seemed like oblivion, in just a moment, that's all it took for God to say, I see you and I honor the things that you do for me. Where are you today? I think we're all either Mordecai or Haman or somewhere in between. Some of us think, man, I'm living my own life, doing my own thing, living in sin, living in earthly pleasure, living for Persia. That could change overnight. And if we repent, then God will relent in order that we might turn back and experience his grace. On the other side, some of us are Haman, and we're wondering, is it worth it? I'm living in Persia. Is it worth it to live for God? I want to live for him. I want to live for him, but it's hard. The cost is high. It's difficult. It's painful. And and sometimes I feel like I'm all alone. God says, I will always honor faithfulness to my call. I will always be faithful to the ones who are faithful. And even when you're not faithful, I will remain faithful to my word and to my promises and to my children. It says it always, it always works out. God has a way of reversing everything for the sake of his purposes. For some of you who are struggling, wondering is it worth it to continue to live for God? Does anybody see the things that I do? I'm not being honored. I'm not, I'm being, it seems like I'm being, in fact, it seems like my life is getting worse sometimes. I'm walking around these walls of Jericho and it seems like nothing is happening. All I'm doing is working in faith and working in faith and working in faith and and nothing is happening. The sixth day, the seventh day, seven, seven times walking around, first five times nothing, six times nothing, seven times nothing. Worship God. They worship God and bam, in a second, everything changes. That's our God. That's our God. He's faithful to his character, to his promises, to his word. He will never, ever, ever fail you and me because he cannot deny his character. He cannot go against his character. He cannot deny himself because this is who he is. Though we are faithless, he will always remain faithful to his people. That's the confidence that we have as we live this life in Persia for the sake of God and his glory. you believe that? That it's worth it. I thought by now these walls would fall down, but I know still that he has never failed me yet. That's our confidence. Our hope is built on nothing less than his blood and righteousness. These things don't change. Our feelings change. They come and go. Our circumstances change. They come and go. Our level of commitment to God changes. It comes and goes. But his faithfulness will never fail. Because all throughout history, this is what God does. He's a master at flipping the script and changing things overnight. In fact, the greatest reversal doesn't happen in this great Korean drama, Persian drama of the book of Esther. The greatest, the greatest reversal comes because we're all waiting for that, aren't we? We're all waiting for the reversal of our fortunes from this broken, sinful world to that which we know is coming as we await that, we're anchored in this hope that 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, Haman built his own gallows and was crucified on it because that's what he deserved. 2,000 years after Jesus, we are building our own gallows, our own cross, because that's what we deserve. But in history, 2,000 years before us, Jesus died on the gallows that our sin had constructed. He died in our place. How's that for reversal of fortunes? The only person of whom it was said, this, it could have been said, this isn't the way it ought to be. But Jesus, the perfect one, who deserved nothing but exaltation, honor, and glory, received the punishment for Haman, for you, for me, that we deserved. And the only people right, who, like Haman, should have been nailed to our own cross, when we put our trust in Jesus, we receive the blessing and the promises and the hope that Jesus alone of all people deserved. And he says in grand reversal, he says, that's yours Forever and ever and ever. Jesus was forsaken on the cross in order that you and I would never be forsaken in our lives. That Jesus took the punishment so that we would never fear. The, My fear is gone. My sins have been forgiven. My future is sure. My hope is secured in Christ. That's not just the song we sing. It's what we live out each day of our lives. And on what seemed to be the darkest day in history, Oh, how things can change overnight. The disciples, the women, run to the tomb in their disturbed, distraught, depressed, grieving condition. And they come to a tomb that's empty and they leave running because they knew that God had met them in that place. The cosmic reversal of Calvary and of the Garden Tomb is the same reversal that awaits us that we're longing for. It is a certainty. It is a fact. That this life is not all that there is. And as we live in faithfulness to him, he will never fail to honor the ones who live for him. That's our hope. That's our confidence. And we see the good news in Esther. The question is, do we believe that? When you stand for God, you will never stand alone. When you fight against God, you're fighting against yourself. But take heart and trust him. Because despite appearances, he will never be unfaithful to his word. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Spend a moment to respond, to reflect. Well, how is God calling you to live in light of these words? Hey, some of us, can you feel? Yeah, if you feel that God has been putting and pointing out a certain sin or relationship or habit or place that you frequent in your heart, yeah, let's not ignore that. Some of you are here, you're just here. You're a parent, you're a friend, you're a cousin, you're an uncle, you're an aunt, you're a relative, whomever you are, you don't usually come here. Can I tell you, you're here today because you needed to be here. Because God has a word for every one of us who's here, no accidents. Maybe some of us, we've been laboring faithfully, wondering if it's worth it, that God would give you the encouragement today that you would know that you're not alone as you journey through this life of faith. Let's pray. Let's spend a minute to respond to the Lord God. Lord, we need you. We need your help. We need your grace. We need your love in us. Lord, show me that you will be faithful. Remind me so that I might live for you, walking by faith, not by sight. Can we do that? Let's pray for a minute together, and then we'll pray and we'll continue on. heaven we thank you that for all of human history you have been faithful to your character that you're absolutely and perfectly utterly holy and though culture changes you don't change though the times change you don't change that your word does not change with the shifting sands of our society but we are to be changed by your word because that's what your word was given to do, to lead us to a savior so that our lives could be changed. Our lives were meant to be countercultural because this world is not our home. Show us, teach us of those things so that in those times, those many momentary decisions that we need to make each day to stand for you remind us that there is a cloud of witnesses, that there's a family of God, and there's a chain of witnesses. We join in that chain, that we might be faithful to the God who has forever been faithful to us. Thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name.